This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Raj Kapoor, CEO and co-founder of Smart Karma. We discuss the story of Smart Karma and the important trends in fintech across Asia and why it is different from the West. Hi Raj. Hey Bernard, how are you? I'm well, and how are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's been a very hectic week. Lots of good activity. Yeah, very good. And congratulations with your recent 7.5 mil combined round. I think you have done your fundraising for the last one year plus. But before we get into that, who am I talking to? I'm talking to Raj Kapoor, CEO and co-founder of a fintech company called Smart Karma. So, but before we get to Smart Karma, Raj, do you want to tell us a little bit about how do you get started in your career? Uh, sure, Bernard. It's actually been a parody of sorts. I'm a math and computer science major. Never took a finance course in my life, but I've pretty much been in finance all my life. I started off as a strategy consultant with a firm now called Oliver Wyman in London. A couple of years into that process, I, I sort of realized very quickly that my heart was back in Asia where I had grown up. And I wanted to build my network and my career in Asian markets. That brought me back to Singapore. And that's also when I switched into a job with a big investment bank. That was Citigroup. I was part of their regional institutional equities team. And I was helping the bank grow its hedge fund franchise in the region. That was very exciting years. The market was in a structural bull run. We essentially were entrepreneurs, but within a bigger bank. In 2009, early 2009, when we were sort of deep into the financial crisis, I decided to leave the big bank and start my first business. I became a founding partner in an equity brokerage business, which we called Aviate Global. The idea there was to build and grow a franchise at a time when the rest of the financial world was in acute distress and upheaval and take advantage of the fact that a lot of good, talented people with great skills and client relationships were out of jobs. We built that business very quickly and as luck would have it, two years later, we had multiple suitors vying to buy that business from us. In 2011, we sold that business and I started working with the new owners. I spent the next three years doing that, and it was in those three years from 2011 to 2014 that I saw emerging trends within capital markets, within financial markets in Asia, but even more so globally, that compelled me to once again leave and start my next business, which is Smart Karma. So from your career in the equities research business, what are the kind of interesting career lessons you can share? I guess, me frankly, I was sort of always the young kid on the desk. What I felt set me apart and prepared me for the next stage was a realization that I needed to differentiate and I needed to constantly add value and upgrade my skills. I did that in my early days by you know, automating and improving workflow for the rest of my team, finding better and better ways for my team to do the work we had to do. And I think that's something I've sort of continued to maintain, process improvement, workflow improvement and everything that we do. The second thing I obviously learned was, you know, looking at companies all across Asia, it became very evident for me that the next growth chapter for Asia 
did not lie in fixed assets, did not lie in property, but rather lay in innovation and technology. You know, with that in mind, sort of fairly early on, before this whole startup euphoria took up in Asia, I started sort of re-engaging with my old roots, which were in, you know, math and computer science. So I guess the benefit that a role in equity research and research sales gave me was really a very introspective mind into other business models and realizing what was going to take off next. And finally, at a very personal level, I think one thing that I really took to heart was something that my boss shared with me while we were waiting for a flight at an airport. She's a very senior banker at City. She's still there. And I had asked her, hey, what do you think makes a really good research salesperson? And she said, humility. And I thought that was a very counterintuitive answer coming from somebody who was a very senior MD in a bank and had you know, several decades of experience. But I've really taken that to heart. You know, Maybe that doesn't apply just in the world of finance. Maybe it applies everywhere. But I, I think certainly more so than in other places, bankers have often struggled with their own personal hubris. And I feel that having humility to make mistakes and learn from them and understand what clients actually need is extremely important. That's a very valuable insight, which comes to the main subject of the day, smart karma. Because being the CEO and the co-founder, I probably have to ask you, what's the mission and vision for the company? Sure. Look, Smart Karma was born to really grow into a very big market that was largely becoming underserved and was seeing unprecedented change. When I talk about this market, I mean the market of uh, institutional investment research. Um, historically, this is a you know, 25 to $30 billion annual market that has been served by big banks across the world. Starting in 2012 and really escalating all the way till now, we started to see big banks downsize their research teams and effectively you know, fire a lot of really good analysts. We started seeing a fragmentation in how research was being produced. We started seeing the emergence of data science and data analytics in how investments were being made. And we really started to see a shift from a traditional to a non-traditional model of research. Interestingly, there were no providers out there in the market trying to bring this fragmented ecosystem into one place and make a very efficient distribution and consumption platform. Really, at a very top-down level, that was the mission. That's what we were trying to do. Now, to address sort of the question about vision, I have a vision that a large part of what banks do under capital markets will get replaced by digital marketplaces. And what I mean by that is that technology will disintermediate large parts of the business functions of banks and create peer-to-peer marketplaces as opposed to agency principal marketplaces. And that's a big fundamental shift. The net result of that shift is essentially reducing several layers of cost that currently sit within the bank and bringing huge efficiency to global marketplaces. So that's the vision behind Smart Karma and the part of the business that we, we are trying to disintermediate, as I explained, was the investment research part of the business. Just to help my audience to understand, how does the traditional equities research actually work? And also that, because I think you have explained a little bit, maybe we can talk a little bit in depth about the kind of problem you're trying to solve with Smart Karma as a kind of premier collaborative research marketplace. Because I understand that most research marketplaces are siloed within the banks itself. Absolutely. So let me sort of give you a peek into how banks have structured research teams for many years. So banks will go and hire hundreds of analysts. These are generally people with economics or finance degrees. 
they will assign each of these analysts a particular sector and a geography to look at. So you could be a China banks analyst or a Taiwan technology analyst or a Singapore property analyst for that matter. You will be given a few companies to look into and your job really will be to stay in touch with the management teams, inspect the financials that these companies report and with that knowledge try and predict future trends and really earnings for these companies. Now over time what started to happen is that banks are struggling to monetize these large research teams. And there are several reasons behind it. The first reason is that historically, banks used to charge clients a trading commission every time a client used to buy or sell a security through the bank. And a large part of this trading commission was essentially the revenue attributed to the research service that the bank was providing. However, what's starting to happen is that these trading commission rates are falling because trading is becoming electronic and it's getting cheaper and cheaper to trade. So the revenue pool that's attributed to research as well as trading is shrinking dramatically. The second thing is that regulators, they're no longer satisfied with an an amorphous and bundled payment that investors make to banks for research as well as other services. So today, you know, different regulators around the world are asking buy-side investors. When I say buy-side investors, I mean companies like Fidelity or, um, you know, or Millennium or, um, you know, any big hedge fund or mutual fund. They're asking these big investors to clearly differentiate what they are paying to different service providers for each service. And this is a very valid request because these costs are being passed on to the end customer whose pensions these funds are managing. And as that starts to happen, banks struggle to understand and clients struggle to explain what exactly it was that they were paying for research and how were they justifying it. With all of these things, the the net result of the problem is that banks simply do not know how to maintain and monetize research teams anymore. And this becomes a business that they just shed off. And as they shed off, these smart analysts set up independent research firms and try and go back to the clients and now charge subscriptions for their services. From a client side, this is a very inefficient model because where they used to pay one bank for services across different sectors and different countries, now they need to suddenly deal with hundreds and hundreds of different research providers. The problem we're trying to solve is how can we bring this vast ecosystem into one place and replace these hundreds of subscriptions with one single subscription to Smart Karma. And it's not unlike the problem we saw in the 90s with the retail industry where you know the internet emerged as a new distribution channel And for a period of time, different vendors started to build their own e-commerce strategies, but then they realized it was a very expensive approach and you needed a platform to provide common services and bring efficiency. So that's what we're doing. We're creating a marketplace where research is bought and sold, but it's all done for a single subscription. So who are the customers to Smart Karma then? Customers to Smart Karma at the moment are professional investors. So these would include endowment funds, sovereign wealth funds, large mutual and hedge funds, family offices. As we grow, we are trying to enter new segments. So for example, a month and a half ago, we launched Smart Karma for journalists. This is a subscription that we call the Press Pass. This allows top journalists from the world over to 
access uh, cutting-edge research from our growing community of inside providers and interact with these analysts on breaking financial stories. There are many interesting segments that lie ahead of us that we're going to address one at a time. So as a multi-sided marketplace, I understand that on your platform, you have inside providers and partners. How do they operate within your platform? Okay. So, you know, in any marketplace, uh, there are essentially two sides. There are the buyers and the suppliers, right? So for us, the suppliers are research providers. We like to call them insight providers. And the buyers, as I was explaining, are buy-side investors, professional investors. Our business model is very straightforward. We collect a single subscription for unlimited and highly personalized access from each client. As a platform, we keep 30% of that subscription. And the balance, 70%, is distributed amongst contributors. That's the basic business model. Now, where do partners come in? We're increasingly noticing several companies that need to provide a research function to their end customers. You know, some examples of this without going into names would be a private bank. You know, a private bank has no research team, but a very straightforward way for them to increase share of wallet and loyalty from their end customers would be to provide access to high quality research and analysts. Now, that is an example of a partner where we would use our platform and our APIs to help power their business model. Okay. And in this case, we collect a different sort of revenue from our partners, which is sort of separate and above from the revenue we collect from our general clients. So one thing I thought may be interesting also is that I looked at your insight providers. They cannot necessarily be just independent analysts. They can be also institutions, right? I think you have some oh, institutions that signed on as contributors. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, majority of our contributors are work at companies. Um, so I work at institutions. The institutions could be small, like, you know, a six-man think tank, or they could be very large institutions such as Morningstar, which employs hundreds of analysts, but is an independent research provider. I guess I want to make the point that our insight providers aren't just people from the financial world. We have law firms acting as insight providers. We have accountancy firms. We have data analytics companies. We have forensic journalists. So, the idea is this is a very diverse marketplace. And by creating a diverse marketplace, we are allowing different views to come together and help our clients in their investing and decision making. And sort of going back, Bernard, to a point about collaboration that you mentioned earlier, this is a very important differentiator at Smart Karma. Uh, in fact, some people like to you know, call us like a mishmash between GitHub and Bloomberg. So what we did as we built technology on Smart Karma we wanted to build features that promoted different analysts with different expertise to work with each other across time zones and across regions and across different domains of expertise. And so to do that, we have built you know, several features that we've borrowed from the world of open source software development, as well as from academia and tailored to an investment research marketplace that incentivize our contributors to you know, work together. Now, by doing that, we become a much more efficient marketplace that connects dots and, you know, adds just so much more value to the end client. Mm. So you see yourself as a marketplace that actually focus a lot more on the distribution side so that you can actually help content providers to actually get massive distribution across to your clients. 
That's right. The average independent research provider has about 20 clients. To go from 20 to 200 clients is a massive feat, which requires huge upfront cost. Cost of acquisition of you know, very large professional investors is an extremely expensive exercise. And as such, you know, boutique research provider firms just, just don't scale. By coming on to Smart Karma, they essentially get access to a very long list of clients from the get-go. And clients get access to their great insight without having to sort of, you know, subscribe to each single one of them individually and having that administrative workload. So it really brings a lot of efficiency. So would you actually also build these services for your contributors? Say one of your customers from a bank decided that they want to go deep in a certain issue. They could actually go through your platform to actually get them to do more work. Yeah, that's right. I mean, every time I speak of research, I say Smart Karma is trying to be a platform that provides research as a service. What I mean by that is that there is a stack of services that together constitute a research process. Right at the bottom of that stack is just simply passive reading of insight. You know, somebody presents an analysis on a breaking issue and you read it. That's like layer number one. Layer number two on top of that is being able to discuss it. And discussions can be public or private, right? So the ability to immediately ask real-time questions over a chat with that insight provider is sort of the next layer. The layer on top of that is to commission bespoke work. I read your work. I asked you the questions. I really believe in this. Now I want to go out deep. Again, while we build these services and others, there are two important things that we always bear in mind. One is that what vertically binds these services together is technology. And the other thing that binds these services together is a unified payment system, which is smart card. What is the revenue model for the platform? I, I understand that in some of your press releases, the press compare you being the Spotify of, mm-hmm. for research. So yep. does it work exactly like the Spotify of Asian research? Where you well, pay as you I mean, go or, or there is a different model altogether? You know, I hate cliches, uh, <laughs> yeah. sort of. Okay. Uh, but I guess sometimes it's easier for people to grasp what you're getting at by using such analogies. Mm. But in some ways, yes, it's very similar in the sense that clients pay a single subscription to Smart Karma. Of course, it's not $5 a month. It's you know several orders of magnitude higher. We keep a certain percentage. As I was explaining, that's about 30%. And 70% goes into a pot, and that pot gets distributed every month. Each contributor gets a share from that pot, and their share is determined based on metrics we measure. And these metrics are broken into two categories. One is engagement metrics, which essentially measure consumption. And the second set of metrics is collaboration metrics, which, as the name implies, measures how much your peers value and rate your work. A combination of your metrics is called your credibility. And essentially, it's your credibility that gets you paid monthly. You know, coming to Smart Karma as an insight provider is quite addictive. There's sort of natural gamification built in because you see where you stand relative to your peers real time. And you you are constantly trying to add value to the end clients in order to be top of the ladder and get the biggest check every month. That's how we build. It's very transparent. It's very efficient. It's a meritocracy. That's interesting. Talking about that, congratulations. I think we're on the very start. We know that you have recently raised a total of US 7.5 mil and you have brought in some very interesting and probably prominent investors in Asia. I wanted to ask who are the investors and how do you pull it off and what will you be doing with the investment? 
Sure. Look, we're really blessed that, you know, we have a very deep bench behind us that believes in our mission and is backing us. I think what's what's clear straight from the outset is that Smartcomma is uh, not trying to build a local or a regional champion. We're going after global category leadership. It was imperative that right from the start, we try and attract an investor base that believes in that mission and that ambition. So, you know, in our investors today, we include three venture capital firms. These are Wavemaker. Wavemaker has been with us right from the start all the way from inception up until now. They include Jungle Ventures. And we also have an investment from Binos, which is a Japanese VC that only invests in marketplaces. Outside of the VCs, we have an arm of the Singapore government as an investor. And we also have an investment from a group led by Mr. Kobun Hui, whom some of you might know was the previous chairman of Singapore Telecom, as well as DBS Bank. Outside of these, some of our investors are very prominent individuals and industry veterans like Mr. Tan Chin Hui, who was the founding partner of Apollo Asia, as well as others who've been in very senior positions in our industry and can really help accelerate and open doors for us in the right places. We're very clear with what we're going to do with the funds. We're using it to do one thing and one thing alone, which is to build a global category leader. In order to do that, we need to invest along a couple of lines. One is we need to continuously improve our product and our technology. And the second line is we need to build out business development. Today, you know, 40 to 45% of our revenue comes from the US and another 25% comes from Europe but we don't have a single human being or an office or any sort of presence in those markets. IE Singapore, which is an arm of the government that helps local enterprises expand in international markets, is now helping us build that presence overseas. So the idea is that in the next couple of years, we will have much stronger seats of operation in international markets with which to build smart karma into a global business. I'm going to hear a lot more from you on that. So coming to the other topic of the day, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the fintech industry across Asia Pacific, given that also 40% of my audience are from the US and there's been a lot of interest about fintech in this market. As a thought leader in this space, at least within the startup ecosystem itself, how does someone define fintech in Asia now or globally? Right. Well, I guess it's two different questions. I'll address the sort of fintech in Asia now. I think fintech in Asia is broadly speaking two different things. On one end of the spectrum is what I call financial inclusion, which is essentially bringing financial services to people who don't even have a bank account and essentially being able to provide these services to them in a digital first fashion. For example, there are places in the world where the first access to the internet was through a smartphone. In the same way, there'll be new ways in which certain people in Asia get access to financial services. And that's one big part of fintech. On the other end of fintech is what I call disintermediation, which means essentially pulling certain big functions out of financial institutions and replicating them in a, in a way that makes them way more efficient, transparent, and by doing so, rapidly enlarging the size of the pie that we're talking about. And I think those are the big categories. Now, the reason why the answer for Asia might not be the same as the answer for the US or any other part of the world is because, you know, maybe the unbanked part 
or the first the financial inclusion part might not apply and that's a very interesting way of defining it of course the fintech could go in different directions because as you rightly pointed out the financial in- inclusion part is more the social and the cultural aspects of of the economies but what are the ongoing trends in the fintech industry because i think that there's also like technologies for example the bitcoin blockchain you know mm-hmm. there is something like even in the loans making space or even like lending clubs what what are the trends you see that cuts across these different aspects of the fintech industry yeah i think the biggest mistake anyone will make is if we bunch the financial technology movement and the underlying technologies that are becoming enablers into the same thread i mean when we talk about social media i mean let's say facebook's the champion for social media but we don't really talk about the technology stack that Facebook uses, right? Mm-hmm. It's two different things. So in the same way, you know, if, if Alipay is the largest fintech company in China, well, we don't really care, you know, what is the underlying technology? Are, you, are they using blockchain or are they using, you know, JavaScript, you know, mm-hmm. for that matter? So I think it's very important that we understand that financial technology at, at sort of a macro level is talking about bringing best practices from the world of technology into the financial world to do two things either promote financial inclusion or to disintermediate and change capital markets. There is a whole stack of underlying technologies that will make these things possible, some of which are, you know, blockchain or Ethereum or Bitcoin or, you know, many other things. Yeah. And the ongoing trends that you have been observing, is there any like yeah. interesting structural changes that's happening? Absolutely. I think so. I think the first and foremost is that banks have become very open at accepting. I wouldn't want to call it disruption, but banks have very have become very open at accepting that they cannot be good at everything and that they need to partner up or invest in other providers that are better in those things. So the first trend that I see is that banks have become VCs across the world. And that's a very interesting thing. The second major trend that I see is that there's a bit of a race now amongst regulators to promote financial technology. And this is the biggest arbitrage opportunity of our lifetime, I think. What's happening is that regulators are promoting more and more incentives and subsidies and in interesting policies to encourage new fintech leaders. But at the same time, they are pressing down harder and harder on the traditional financial institutions by steeper and fiercer compliance and regulatory requirements. So the cost of doing business for the incumbents is going up, while the cost of doing business for the upcomers is going down. All of this is being driven by by technology. So this widening rift, these widening jaws, is a very, very interesting arbitrage option. And, And frankly speaking, there are hardly any sectors in the world that have witnessed this in the last 30 years. That's a very interesting trend, and that's worth spotting. I think there are two more trends I want to speak about because they're mega trends. One is, obviously, consumption is shifting to millennials. And... That's happening at a global scale and at an unprecedented pace. And, you know, it's very important to understand what millennials like and how they like to consume. And one little anecdote to share with you, for instance, uh, there is a great website which surveys millennials across various different questions. And one of the best questions they ask is, can you rank the following companies in terms of whether you like them or hate them? And the four biggest banks in the U.S., all four of them are in the bottom least liked companies by millennials. So, you know, millennials don't like banks. They like to do their financial services in a different way. So that's a third trend. And the fourth and final trend I want to talk about is that 
data is the new economy. There's a whole slew of businesses that will emerge that mine and monetize data in unique and new ways in order to improve various parts of the economy. And I think these are the four overarching trends. Everybody is talking about the banks being disrupted. And the banks recently have been all downsizing and they're not doing well. I mean, mm-hmm. compared as in maybe 10 to 15 years ago, what is actually the underlying problem? I think you mentioned just now about one ongoing trend is about the arbitrage of regulation. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. one of the causes or is it just an effect? Look, I think cause is very straightforward. The cause is that the financial sector, which is largely banks, have systematically and consistently underinvested in technology for the last many years. So a few years ago, Booz Allen did a study on essentially R&D as a percentage of sales for all the major industries out there, you know, consumer tech, so on. It's no surprise that tech industry was reinvesting the largest percentage of its sales back into R&D. But this study wasn't good enough. So they did a second study where they looked at the total dollar value that was being invested into R&D by different industry groups. And what was very interesting was that the smallest slice was others, right? So, you know, technology was big, consumer was very big, autos was very big. And then the smallest slice in that pie chart was others. And banks were a part of that others, together with certain other industries. So banks were spending less than 2% of total global capital spent on R&D. Now, that's very surprising because in most markets, the financial sector is anywhere between 30 to 60% of GDP and was spending less than 2% on R&D. So that's the basic premise. Having a bank license, running a banking business has been a very, very, very easy way for anyone to make money. Making money was free if you were a bank. But what's happened over the last 10 years is that is no longer a fundamental truth. Bank margins are being compressed in an unprecedented way because of technology and regulation. And because of that, suddenly banks are realizing that they have systematically underinvested in tech. And now that's leading to all the other changes that I spoke about. In the Research Insights business this year, a lot of people talk about the softening economy in 2016. I mean, stemming from recent China's equities crash to some countries entering into technical recessions. Instead of asking you how bad this is going to get, I want to ask what are the interesting opportunities that you see coming up? Yeah. Well, actually, there are several unbelievable opportunities. I think the first big opportunity is in frontier markets. And, you know, Asia's got several several of them. The Vietnamese market, for example, and when I say Vietnamese market, I mean everything, you know, equities, bonds, property, even the startup market, for example, is doing really well. It's extremely cheap. Most of the market is trading below book value and at single-digit earnings. And it's been largely overlooked. But if you look at underlying trends, Vietnam's the largest beneficiary of the Trans-Pacific Agreement. It's an extremely large beneficiary of manufacturing shifting away from China and moving towards Southeast Asia. It's a very big beneficiary of demographics, and we're just coming out of an NPL cycle. So I see tremendous value in frontier markets. And these are also markets where there is very little research or insight. And there are very few investors who have participated so far. Mm. So that's, that's sort of, you know, one big block. Outside of that, I see a, a large structural opportunity of investing innovators. I, I see a super cycle of investing in innovation. And there's a very simple and straightforward reason why. Globally, interest rates are at record lows. In some countries, we have negative interest rates. 
what that means is, you know, when you invest into the bonds of a country where rates are negative, you're essentially guaranteed a loss on your investment. So what this is telling us is that big allocators, large money managers have to think of new places to invest where they're going to get better guaranteed or better projected returns over the next 10 years. This is unlocking large volumes of capital for investing in, you know, VCMP. Uh, and that's why I think it's a super cycle for innovation. And then, you know, similarly, I see big value in, you know, so I mentioned frontier markets overall. I mentioned innovation as a theme. And I also see very, very interesting value starting to emerge in, you know, what I call uh, contrarian trades, for example. So the whole year, for example, so far this year has proven this me right on this third point. We hit the point of peak pessimism with energy markets, you know, with crude oil hitting, you know, mid $30. And in fact, you know, this is this is very shallow thinking because no one really delved deeper into the impact of, you know, what was the price elasticity of demand as prices fell. So contrarian trades, I think, are very, very interesting right now. Okay, so this is this is very very interesting. So there there's a lot of opportunities because of all this of what is going on. I think the frontier markets you mentioned would be something like Myanmar and Japan's negative interest rates that's ongoing. So there's a lot of new opportunities that will come up basically. Oh, absolutely, Bernard. And I think this is where you have to focus on diverse viewpoints. I think following the herd is sort of a guaranteed way to lose money at the moment. There is huge crowding around very few trades globally. And I think the persons who are going to make money are people who are going to think on their own two feet, who are going to kick the tires and do their research, and who are going to be you know, meticulous and disciplined and understand that we are living in a world where a lot of the trends that we are seeing are unprecedented. I think it's always great to have a conversation with you, Raj, not just here, but also privately, where I know you have a lot of very interesting insights about Asia that you usually share. So help my audience then, how do they find you? Look, several ways. I think the easiest would probably be to just, just drop me an email or come to Smart Karma uh, to our website and you know request a trial. And I take a very special interest in everybody who, who requests a trial of Smart Karma. Also, I guess I'm very much available on uh, LinkedIn or Facebook. I use both quite actively, especially LinkedIn for professional purposes. Please connect with me and I'd be very happy to, to have a chat or a discussion. Sure. I will definitely put your LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Twitter accounts on the, our show notes, and then they will be able to connect with you. You can find me at bleongcwrbernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia at A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and now Google Play as well. Of course, drop us a feedback, and it's always good to hear from you. And once again, Raj, many thanks for coming on the show, and I wish you all the best for Smart Karma. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Bernard. Good luck.